Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning we're turning to the Word of God. It's the Sunday before Christmas, the Sunday before Easter Sunday on, on Christmas Eve. I'm going to speak to you about light out of darkness and joy coming in the morning. But tonight, or today, I want to speak to you about the Holy Spirit. Christmas is a time for celebrating the birth of Christ. And in the days of the early church, there were many errors that were taught that diminished the glory of Christ. And those errors had in them the capacity to destroy Christianity. So when Arius came teaching, Arius was the name of a, of a bishop in the early church. When he came teaching that Jesus was just a glorified man, what the consequences of that teaching were, uh, were a view of Jesus that said, he's an example for us. He didn't die for us. He didn't take our place. He shows us how to live. Terrible, terrible heresy. Those heresies were, were addressed through a series of conferences and convocations of the church. We call them the councils where the bishops and the teachers and the preachers came together and said, no, this is, and they came up with creeds like the Nicene Creed, like the Council of Chalcedon, the Statement of the Council, and these taught us the truth about Jesus. And today, formally, there's not, within the Christian church as a whole, there's not a whole lot of debate over these matters. Now, there are churches, which claim to be churches, which teach those heresies, but they are without the pale. They're outside the boundaries of Christendom. They are not part of the church. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, they teach these classic, what we call Christological errors. Errors about the nature of Jesus and what he did. But ever since the early days of the church, the heresies that have been, the big heresies that have the chance to grab us and to, and to ruin us, are not Christological in nature, but what we would call pneumatological, from pneuma, which is breath or spirit. And the heresies that we must be on guard against if we're going to enjoy the glory of Christ have primarily to do with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning I want to return to Matthew 12 and to speak about the work and the character of the Holy Spirit from the passage we've looked at over the last several weeks. And I want to conclude by making you aware of three things you must never say to the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to explain why you must say those, you must never say those things before we actually come in and delineate what those three things are that you must never say to the Holy Spirit if you are to enjoy the presence of Christ in your life. All right? So stand with me, would you? Let's look again at Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw and all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
how then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Jesus is saying, how do I cast out demons? By the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Has this kingdom of God come upon you? Well, it comes upon you if you have the Holy Spirit of God on you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will, by your Spirit, open our eyes and illuminate our hearts. Dispel darkness, Father, and cause us to see the glory of the Spirit. And through the Spirit, Father, which is breath and vague, may we with clarity, as though he were a lens, see the perfection of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus speaks about the Spirit here, and Jesus speaks frequently about the Holy Spirit. Here he declares that he has done these things, not by Beelzebul, the miracles that he has worked, but by the, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has done this. And then he goes on and he says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Any sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, and to speak a word against the Son of Man is to blaspheme. Blasphemy is to speak against, to, to be critical of God, to hold God in contempt in some way. Whoever speaks blasphemes the Son of Man. It's not blasphemy there. It's not the Greek word blasphemeo, but the, the parallel with the preceding verse is clear, where it is blasphemy. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, there are two things I want you to note, and a third as well, which we'll come to later, but two things initially, that it's really important that you understand out of this passage, and that is that our God is triune. That we do not have the God of Christ, we do not have the God of, of Christianity, we do not have the living and eternal God, the one who rules the universe and who deals with the sins of his people unless we have him in Trinity, in triune form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is absolutely clear in this passage. And the reason it's clear is that Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. 
And when he says any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, what he means is that throughout the world today and every day, all across the earth, people are sinning against God and blaspheming God. God, when we use the term just God, and especially when in conjunction with the Spirit or the Son, God is the Father. And what Jesus says is, look, you all are constantly sinning against God. And across the world, people are constantly blaspheming God. They take his name in vain. They speak ill of him. They say, ah, he doesn't exist. Blasphemy. And he says, any sin against God, that is the Father, any sin or blasphemy will be forgiven. So the context is clearly the Father, God. That's who we think we blaspheme against. But then he adds, elaborating on it, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You understand that what he does there is he raises the Holy Spirit to the level of the Father. It's very obvious, right? You can blaspheme God, and it will be forgiven you. But blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and it will not be forgiven. Two things are clear in that, all right? One is that the Holy Spirit is on the same divine level as God. That he is not a lesser being. That he can be blasphemed. The second thing that's clear in that statement, which, which may not be as obvious, but I think you'll see, is that, that the Holy Spirit is actually a person. Because you can't speak against or blaspheme a chair or the wind. It must be a person that you're holding in contempt. And so it's very clear in the words of Jesus that the Holy Spirit is the equal in essence of the Father and is a person as the Father is. Because he says, you better not go against him as a person. Then Jesus goes on and he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. And in that statement, this is one of the great Trinitarian passages in all of the Bible. Because what he does is he says, you can blaspheme the Father, you can blaspheme the Son, you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But you better watch out if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Here he's elevating himself to the level of God. He says, you can speak a word against the Son of Man. But again, this warning. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. It's a very serious warning. That even the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ can be spoken against, but do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now last week I spoke to you about what this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. And I want to, again, say what I said last week, which is that this is not a light sin. This is a sin that is a sin of knowledge and experience and out of knowledge and experience, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and calling it evil. And I think the classic example of this is found in these Pharisees that Jesus is warning when he speaks this. When they, later in the life of Jesus, are part of the group that pays off the prison guards or the guards that are at the tomb of Christ. To say that the disciples came and stole the body because they know darn well what happened. They know. They know what the Spirit did and they don't like it. And so they're going to go against the Spirit light. This is not simple impenitence. This is not simply refusing to repent because all of us have refused to repent. And all of us right now are probably, not probably, certainly in some area in our lives refusing repentance, right? Aren't you doing that? 
right now saying, I'm not going to deal with this. And that is not an unforgivable sin. Now, if we die in impenitence, we will not be forgiven. And so it's not a light thing. But that's not the sin that Jesus is speaking about here. This is to speak against the Holy Spirit. Why is it, and I think it's clear here, that there is something unique and glorious about the Holy Spirit that in a certain sense is, that is more glorious, I don't know what to say, more glorious, more demanding of your respect, more awesome, and therefore more sinful to speak against in the Holy Spirit than even in the Father and the Son. Can, can that be? We know that the Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, that he, is, he proceeds from the Father, and if we are part of the Western Church, there's been a big debate between Eastern Orthodoxy and the West, and in the Western Church, we believe, and I believe, that the, the Spirit is given by the Son as well as the Father, so that the Father directs the Son, the Father and Son direct the Holy Spirit. There is this, this hierarchy in the Godhead, and yet it's the third member of the Trinity that Jesus here says, don't speak against him. Don't speak against him. How can it be that the third member of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, would be the one that you must be careful not to blaspheme? Now come to these three things you must never say to the Holy Spirit. But now we're laying out the groundwork of why you must never say these things. Why is it? How can there be a glory that transcends the glory of Christ? Is there any greater glory than Christ? We're told that in Christ all the fullness of the Father dwells. He's the very radiance of the Father's glory, we're told. Nothing outshines the sun, does it? And yet, throughout his ministry, not just here but elsewhere, Jesus points to a glory and to the power of a gift that transcends his own ministry and his own life. Now, it transcends, I'm playing games here I'm going to say it transcends but it does not surpass it goes over but it's not greater than you know I could build a bridge over this building and that bridge would transcend our building but this building is where God's glory is in a certain way in which I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit surpasses the glory but his, of Christ or the Father. But he does have a transcendent power and glory. And Jesus himself says that unless I go from you, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit comes, you'll do even greater things than I have done. And so we, we have to take seriously the statements of Christ himself when he says that the Spirit is a transcendent gift. How can this be? There are a, a number of books, three of which I think many of you will be familiar with, that have been written by one great Christian about another great Christian. The most recent of these books, I think, was the, the book that Elizabeth Elliot wrote about her husband, Jim Elliot. These names may be familiar to some of you. Family was an old friend of mine, so I'm very familiar with it, and I'm familiar with the greatness of Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband, Jim Elliot, was one of a group of men who went to a missionary, as missionaries to a tribe in South America in the 1950s. And they were, they were slaughtered by the people they went to, killed. And so Elizabeth Elliot wrote this book called Through Gates of Splendor, 
about her husband. Now, Elizabeth Elliot was a great woman, <laughs> transcendent. I loved her. But that book and that work by her was about her husband. And, and she spoke of his commitment. He's the one who said um, many famous things, but among them, um, the statement that uh, he who gives what he cannot keep to gain what cannot be lost is no, I can't remember the rest of it, but that great statement, you know. And you think, what a man. And yet, I would say to you that Elizabeth Elliot was greater than her husband in certain ways. Maybe not in overall measurement, certainly martyrs are esteemed by God. But Elizabeth Elliot, in her greatness, wrote a book that honored her husband. And she wrote out of her greatness to honor her husband. And in a sense, by the work she did, she rose above her husband. She added her glory to his, to esteem him. This has happened at other times. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, the great New England preacher, Northampton, Massachusetts, mid early mid-1700s. A friend of the family, of the Edwards family in those days, was a young man named David Brainerd. David Brainerd may have been in love with one of Edwards' daughters, we don't know. We do know that he was a very close friend of the family, and he was 20, 30 years younger than Jonathan Edwards. He went as a, as a missionary to Native Americans and gave himself to that work. And in the course of several years of working with, with in the mission field, came down with a wasting illness and he came back. It was clear he was going to die. He came back and was nursed at the Edwards home and there he died. Jonathan Edwards, this great famous theologian, wrote a book called The Diary of David Brainerd. He took his diary and added to it and made it into sort of a biography of David Brainerd. And there you have one great man adding his greatness to another man. And the result is greater than both of them, in a sense. That book, as Elizabeth Elliot's book, has inspired thousands to go to the mission field. It's been a great work. And so you see Jonathan Edwards, Athanasius did this for Antony, uh, a hermit. And the book by Athanasius, who was a great Christian, about the life of this monk named Antony, who lived in the, in the Egyptian desert, inspired the whole monastic movement and was a key to Augustine coming to faith because he heard of the book and read it and he was overwhelmed by the holiness of Anthony, written by a greater, more famous man, Athanasius. And so what we have is, in the Holy Spirit, is a member of the Trinity, very God of very God. We can say that as of him as much as we can of the Son. Very God of very God, whoever lives to bring glory to the Son and to the Father. And in that way, he has diminished himself and thus risen in our esteem because he lives to glorify the Son. He lives to glorify the Father and his greatness, therefore, Jesus and the Father will not have spoken against. Does this make sense? Don't speak against the Spirit. Do not question the Spirit. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can say what you want about against the Father, and it can be forgiven. And you can say what you want about the Son, and it can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you know the Holy Spirit in power, and you speak against him, and you call him evil, then and people do this, then 
there is very little hope for you. Now, I want to speak briefly about the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and in our lives before I come to these three things you must never say. The Holy Spirit is always found in the Word of God at the point where life is given. You may not be aware of this, but it's true. Life and breath are tied together. Breath is spirit. Breath is pneuma. It's the same word. Life is a different word, but spirit and breath are together, and the Bible clearly ties breath and life. So we're told in, in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. In other words, there's nothing there. It's formless. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And the very first thing of creation is the Holy Spirit moving across the surface of the waters. Now, does that remind you of anything else in the Bible? That, that statement about the Holy Spirit? It should. About the Holy Spirit bringing life miraculously? When the angel comes to Mary and tells her she's going to bear the Messiah... She says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answers and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God overshadows Mary. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is always there at the giving of life. Psalm 33 tells us that creation took place this way. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And that breath is spirit, by the spirit of his mouth. Every act of creation is the spirits by the will of the Father and the Son. Now this is true of physical life, physical breath, but it's especially true of spiritual life and spiritual breath. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus and says, how do I gain eternal life? And Jesus says, except you be born again, you cannot receive eternal life. And Nicodemus says, how on earth can God require that I be born again? Can I go back into my mother? Is there some way that this, this is a nonsense, Jesus, he's saying. Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the breath, the pneumatos, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is told, the Holy Spirit does what he wants. He blows where he wills. He, his breath goes where he wants it to go. Where the Father directs it, it's his prerogative, it's not ours. And everyone on whom that breath descends comes to life and is born again. So the Holy Spirit is the power of God for salvation. Eternal life is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter writes, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The spirit brought Jesus to life. The resurrection of Christ himself was by the spirit. And every person who is resurrected one day will be breathed upon, filled, enlivened, animated, brought back to life by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is life. There is a second thing that the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is power. Absolute power. Now in our passage this morning, Jesus said, if I do this by the Spirit of God, then what do your sons do it by? Jesus is attributing the power that is in him, the power that caused that mute and blind man to see, to the Holy Spirit. You understand that Jesus did what he did, all his miracles, because he was man. He did them by trusting his Father and working by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus returned in Galilee in the power of of the spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all he came back he came back to Galilee in the power of the spirit the beginning of his ministry was in the power of the spirit preaching to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius uh, that Gentile centurion to whom God sent Peter when he is opened the church up to the Gentiles. Peter says to those Gentiles, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God the Spirit was with Jesus. This is how he did what he did. If you want life, you need the, the, the Holy Spirit. If you want power, you don't have a greater gift than the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus. And finally, I, there are many other things we could say about the Holy Spirit, but life and power. And the Holy Spirit was to Jesus the assurance he needed in the dark moments of his life that he was the Son of God. God sent his Spirit to rest on his son at critical moments in his life and ministry. At the beginning, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove again at the transfiguration in the home stretch as he's making his way to Jerusalem where he goes to die. The Holy Spirit comes down at the transfiguration as a dove on Jesus Christ and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Forty days and nights Jesus fasted and then he was subject to the temptation of Satan and that temptation was to say to him, oh, are you really the son of God? If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, do this, turn this stone into bread. If you're the son of God, if you're so special, if you are who you think you are, jump off the temple. And Jesus was sustained by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit, Scripture says, that we are the sons of God. You and I need the Holy Spirit. We cannot live without the Holy Spirit. We are dead and dead as can be without the Holy Spirit. He is life. He is power. He is assurance. He is everything we need. And Jesus 
told his disciples that he would give them a gift that would be greater than what his presence meant to them in the Holy Spirit. And that is the word of God. And you can't say, well, nah, he didn't really mean that. He meant it. And he lived it. So I want to come to the end and the three things that we cannot say to the Holy Spirit. The first thing you must never say to the Holy Spirit of God, given who he is, given his ministry, given the esteem he's held in and what Jesus says about him, the first thing you must never say to the Spirit is you must. You do not command the Spirit. I don't command the Spirit. The Spirit is sovereign. And yet we think by our prayers, by our casual statements, by a million different things that we can actually command the Spirit of God. I have, I hope, never in my life said I led a person to the Lord. I am just one little piece in a great glorious symphony that the Holy Spirit brings together. The Holy Spirit saves you. And no man can do anything other than to plant a seed, water a seed, add a little fertilizer. We are nothing. The Holy Spirit is everything. And so when we say to God, you must, when we tell our children, pray this prayer and you will be saved, we're in essence commanding the Holy Spirit. We're saying the Holy Spirit will do what I say. The Holy Spirit does what he wants. Jesus makes it very clear. When he says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, he's saying the Holy Spirit is sovereign and does what he wants. You don't command him. Now, we live in a day when the heresies are pneumatological. They have to do with the Spirit. So we say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But then we undermine that by speaking ill of the Holy Spirit. Where does this go on today? It goes on in a number of ways in the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and our church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the error that has been the error for a thousand years is the error of saying the church can do these things and it doesn't need the Spirit. In John 16, if you have your Bibles, look there with me a second. In John 16, 14, and 15, Jesus says something vital to understand about the Holy Spirit. John 16, 14, and 15. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking of the spirit of truth here. He says, he will glorify me. For he will take of mind and will disclose to you all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus has done, who he is, his blood, his righteousness, and applies it to us. The church can't do that. No baptism can do that. No mass Nothing can do that. Only the Spirit can do that. And it is 
a travesty of the scriptures to say that we can wash your original sin by baptizing you and that this right and this privilege belongs in the church. And you know that Roman Catholicism straight up says that salvation is in the church and we can give it to you. This is a heresy. It is blasphemy. All right? We've dealt with that one. The Protestant Reformation was known as a Reformation of the Spirit. If you read about it, you know it was about the Spirit. 150, nearly 200 years ago, a Presbyterian pastor came on the scene in upstate New York named Charles Finney. Charles Finney had seen revivals in his youth. He became an attorney and then he was led to be a pastor. He didn't study. He just went straight into the pastorate. He wasn't trained well, but he was exceptionally smart. Uh, and he went around and he, he preached revival services. And in those revival services, he realized that if he did certain things, he would get people to respond. So he introduced what was called the anxious bench. And he introduced what was called the altar call. Calling people forward, calling people by name, saying... Roger, I know you're a sinner. Don't you want to be saved right now? Come up. You know, that kind of thing. And he would do that. And he would get amazing responses. And so he wrote in his, his systematic theology, a revival, which is the Holy Spirit coming down on a congregation, on a people, on a town. A revival is always a work of the Spirit. A revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means as much as any other effect produced by the application of means. You can do it. Just do it right. There may be a miracle among its antecedent causes, or there may not be. The apostles employed miracles simply as a means by which they arrested attention to their message, establishing its divine authority. But the miracle was not the revival. The miracle was one thing. The revival that followed was quite another thing. The revivals in the apostles' days were connected with miracles, but were not miracles. I said that a revival is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. What he's claiming here, and what the Protestant church and the evangelical church has claimed for nearly two centuries, is the Spirit has to do it. The Spirit must do it. And so we have revival preachers who go around saying, right now come forward and God will save you. And they count the number of salvations. Because they're using the means rightly. I've been at charismatic healing services when literally the pastor, the preacher has said at the high point of this sermon, Holy Spirit, I release you. This is the Holy Spirit of God. We do not command we never say, you must for the Holy Spirit. We never say it. Second thing I want to say, you never say to the Holy Spirit. We worship the Spirit. We don't command Him. The second thing is you don't say, I won't. <laughs> don't say, I won't to the Holy Spirit. Don't say, I won't walk in step with you. Don't say, I don't need you. Don't say, I won't. We are to obey Jesus. John 14, verse 21. Uh, give me a moment here. 
14.21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, what did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do? He would disclose, right? Remember? The Holy Spirit disclosed the glories of Christ and the powers of Christ. So Jesus says, if you obey me, I will disclose myself to you, which means I will give you the Spirit. Don't say no to God. Don't say no to the Spirit when he comes. His work is to convict us. It's one of the things I haven't mentioned, but it says, and Jesus says that he will convict the world. When the Holy Spirit is working to convict you, don't say no. Don't say no. Never say no to the Holy Spirit. Imagine the losses in your life if you had said no to the Holy Spirit. Imagine the losses of, in King David's life if he had said no when the Holy Spirit said, go out there. Go out there. Pick up those, those stones. Go out there. You can do it. Don't say no. Finally, the last thing and the most perhaps important thing that we can be told never to say to the Holy Spirit is you can't. Don't say you can't. This is a terrible thing to say. And it's being said all over. No one says that Jesus can't do it. But they say the power of Jesus is weak. That's why we left our former denomination. Because the new birth by the Holy Spirit was said not to be strong enough to make a, a totally new creation. Never say you can't. This past week I heard a story I want to close with about a, a young man went to a prestigious school and in that prestigious school became convinced that he was gay. Graduated from that school, got married to his male lover and then at some point in the next months or year learned that his lover had been unfaithful to him and kind of in despair divorced him and then met a, I'll say a young woman, um, but it was a young woman who was transsexual um, being in the process of conversion to being a man. And so this man was with a man who was a woman and they were falling in love as I understand it they were dating and then COVID hit and they were separated for some months and when they came back together when they came back together he wanted to resume the relationship as a, but she said wait a second I got to tell you something during the months we were apart I came to know God and I'm no longer pretending to be a man I'm a woman and so this young man started reading the Bible and reading other Christian thinkers and over a period of months became convinced that what his friend had told him was true and he too said I'm a man and I want a woman and gave his life to Christ we have said that the Holy Spirit can't do it 
We have blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. There is nothing that the Holy Spirit can't make new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit and the glory that is ours through him. We thank you for his humility that is like Christ, who in his humility didn't consider the throne necessary, but made himself like a man, a man, Father, taking on the likeness of a man. He descended from his throne. And the Holy Spirit, Father, in quiet and powerful ways, works the glory of Christ into our lives. May he be honored here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.